the thing we tap into is something beyond ourselves, something bigger than ourselves. And once we can tap into that, it's like that's when the magic happens and and um, we can sort of give up our preconditions and our ego and our, you know, whatever. I think it's just such a privilege to be able to access that, you know. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a very special episode for me of Tapping the Flow. That is the voice of uh, one of my favourite songwriters and singers on the planet, uh, Lou Rhodes, who I had the pleasure of touring with uh, for a couple of years back in 2005 or six or something like that. Lou, as some of you will well know, is the singer from the band Lamb and songwriter, principal songwriter, I should say, with Andy Barlow. Their music has affected many, many people in a hugely positive way and... This is a wonderful conversation to to be involved in the uh, tipping of the cap to authenticity in one's songwriting adventures and uh, diving into the processes behind how Lou comes up with her incredibly heartfelt and transcendent lyrical ideas. These are ideas that come from somewhere far greater, as she says herself in the intro. Um, There's no beating around the bush here. We're going straight into the conversation. And uh, I hope you enjoy this magic ride. That should do it now. Testing, testing. Yes, it's recording. Okay, cool. Uh, now I've got to find you again. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> this is life now. Ones and zeros. Here we are. Uh. There we go. Yes, right. Okay, yeah. I'm recording into Ableton so I can just send you a... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. Nice. You're rocking Ableton there. Have you got I've Ableton got 11? my head around some of the technology anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've got an Apollo, uh, a UAD Apollo as well, which is absolutely awesome. Nice. Um, I've got, unfortunately, well, oh, I can, I can do this without the glasses now that I've done all of that. Cool. <laughs> I need to get some glasses for myself as well. It's like uh, the amount of effort I put into making stuff legible makes me so tired. I'm like, <laughs> do you have to squint when you read? No, not not externally. Internally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> internal squinting. <laughs> Sounds like an album title right there, doesn't it? Internal internal squint. I like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> right is um. I'm just thinking, right, okay, so that should be all right. I don't have to turn to the mic to do this. I can do this like no, this, I think. No, I've learned that over time, that the microphone's kind of happy to pick it up from over there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's been a, been a journey, this whole thing of talking yeah. to people like this. So how long have you been doing this podcast? So I started doing it last year in, uh, in January, and then I did like, I think I did four episodes, and then I sort of hit a brick wall with it and uh, lost my faith in the whole process mm. but then at the start of I don't even know where we are was it the start of this year <laughs> yes it was this year or last year or 10 years ago the start of this year I started doing it again on a weekly basis because uh, I was in Spain for four months and then we came back and now we're in Woodbridge and I thought like the music scene needs to sort of get back to life somehow not yeah. only that I need to come back to life and I need to talk to people and uh, through talking to people I found there's a lot of creative individuals out there with their irons firmly in the fire, ready to brand this year with some beautiful music. And I want to be one of them. And so I've learned so much from other people, creative processes. And 
and mostly fearlessness. Mm. This fearlessness in, in the fight against commercialized music, we're still here and we're, we've got a bigger part to play than we ever have had before, you know. So I'm now fearless and I've absorbed so much from talking to people. Yeah. You know. That, I think that's the important part, isn't it? I think uh, yeah. at the beginning of the first lockdown, I got quite fearful for a moment because it was just like, you know, all our live work over the summer was cancelled and I was just like, damn, what am I going to do to survive? And then I thought, actually, I can't even go there because, mm-hmm. you know, otherwise I'll just be kind of frozen into this sort of state of fear and not being able to create. And so I decided to just create, um, you know, it's like planting potatoes and at some point they'll they'll start to kind of grow fruit and, uh, you know. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just trust. It's a big, a big exercise in trust, isn't it? When uh, all the sort of security, well, if you ever have any security as a creative no. individual, I don't know if you do, but it feels like it was, uh, it, it, it feels like it, it kind of hit an all-time low when this whole pandemic hit and, the last few revenue streams <laughs> open to us as musicians seem to be shut down, you know, now that, now yeah, that, yeah, now yeah. that nobody buys I... recorded music or not, you know, a lot of few people mm. buy recorded music, you know, it's like, uh, it gets, it gets tougher and tougher, doesn't it? As you well The know. only thing, the only thing we've got left is the fact that we need to make music and that that's keeping me going. I think it's, it's quite yeah. nice to be in this position though, because, I think in doing this as well, I think everybody has created creativity within them, you know, and uh, if we have no money, creativity is worth a lot more than that. There are so many things that are worth more that we're missing the point of. Like yeah. I was having this conversation with my kid this morning. We're going off on a tangent here, but Minecraft came into the equation. and uh, I know it go- well. <laughs> you know it well, right? But gold in our life is like, oh my God, it's worth so much money. And Minecraft is worth nothing. You can't cut anything with it. It's crap. You know, and and my view on things is that gold is worth very little and soil is worth a lot more, but we're missing the point of that. That's and so creativity true. as well is a very, very valuable resource, mental health and all that sort of stuff. And just beauty, yeah. you know. So true. I mean, I don't think, I, I couldn't have survived even, you know, pandemic or no pandemic. I, I, you know, music and creativity keeps me alive, hmm. you know. And it's more of a kind of, need from the core than than a head thing it's like it's almost like this kind of werewolf (laughs) comes out from from the core you know it's just like and you know I'll go for a few days maybe sometimes I'll go for a few days and I haven't created anything whatever it might be it can be you know it can be written text or music or or even cooking a good meal you know it's like there's a need to sort of be creative. And it's like you said, I think, you know, I think it's a basic human need. Hmm. Um, And and I kind of really, I guess I'd I'd really like more people to be able to access that, Hmm. you know, because I do think I had some friends over at the weekend and we were talking about that. Um, And, and, you know, one of them was a, is a writer and, you know, we were talking about that need to create and that mm. that thing just keeps you sane. And, uh, you know, as creative people, I think, you know, we're well known for being kind of more 
maybe sort of on the edge psychologically than other people. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that we have the capacity to find more joy through our creative process. And so it's a yeah. double-edged sword, I, I suppose. And I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd, I guess I'd like to encourage more people to leap off the edge with us, really, you know. Yeah, uh, where to start with that? I mean, for sure, uh, it's it's. I've described. I think for myself, as, as everybody possesses creativity, but not everybody is possessed by it. And I think that we're That's possessed really, by it. Yeah, you know. And so, so I think one of our roles in life is to sort of open up possibilities in every single aspect of it. Like you say, cooking a meal or whatever, cleaning a window. There was a guy cleaning the window. That's everything is creative. There's a there's an energy to it, and it's part of the flow. You know, and. Uh, for me, like I think creativity is is accessing something that that needs to be accessed deep within the tunnels of where I am. Like I don't want to stand in the light not knowing what's inside the tunnels, so I go into the tunnels and I excavate and I come out with this thing and I'm standing there going, "Oh God!" But maybe it's not for anybody but myself. But the act of doing so is what creativity is about. Maybe not what you find. So true. Actually, that's so weird. You're talking about going into dark tunnels. I wrote a poem about that yesterday. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've been, um, see, so basically during during this kind of lockdown, I kind of realized that I needed to kind of diversify. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the first lockdown, I started to teach myself piano. And that was, that's been such an amazing process. And it's like a sort of daily meditation. Mm. Um, and then more recently, I've, I've started uh training as a psychotherapeutic counsellor. So um, I've started a foundation training, which is just one night a week. Um, and somehow through the process of that, I, well, I guess that pro that, that whole process, the first thing you have to do as a counsellor, when training as a counsellor is to get to know yourself and all your inner processes. And so it, it perfectly dovetails with the whole creative process as well, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, you know, Carl Jung, I mean, he's psychoanalytical, which is another strand completely. But he was a great painter and he used painting to f sort of channel his subconscious. And so in this process, in my process of kind of starting to explore that further, I decided to kind of to start a daily poetry writing practice mm. and just kind of try and let it come from somewhere within rather than thinking too much about it. And I'm sure, you know, in songwriting, that's a really yeah. big part of 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 lyric writing particularly is not coming from the head, just coming from somewhere else and letting it flow out. And, yeah. Um, but yeah. poetry is so much freer somehow because you're not constrained to uh, it fitting in a certain musical shape mm. or rhythm or um, melody or whatever, and it can just flow out. And it's just been such a liberating process doing this daily thing, you know, uh, yeah. And and what surprises me most about it is that something else comes through that I kind of don't even totally recognise as me, you know, and and that's why it's so exciting because it's like a complete discovery, you know. It's like quite often when I'm writing the poems, there'll be a a turnaround at the end that just comes out of nowhere, and I'm just like, oh, where did that come from, you know? And it's like it's just yeah. 
yeah, it's just such an amazing process, just tr- trusting the process rather than feeling that you have to be mm-hmm. in control of it all the time. So, yeah, I don't know. That's that is that's exactly like what I align with myself. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, but like like normally at the end of the towards the end of the conversations, uh, I ask someone to present a song or play a song or something. And uh, I know you have a song that you want to present, but how do you feel about reading a poem yeah sure I, I, I just I'd, I'd love to hear that to, to to sort of like to hear where you've been going with this because I, I'm sure it's going to be amazing I've, re- I've seen some of the stuff you've put on Facebook and it has been phenomenally um, introspective but to a point that <laughs> it sort of explains so. how I'd be feeling myself and I think that's what we're after here but like do you fancy giving it a go I'd yeah. love to hear that yeah sure will you thanks Okay, so this is a poem called Incarnation. Each passing year, they grow deeper, these roots of mine. In the darkness, they push through the stubborn soil made hard by winter's chill. Granular and unforgiving, the earth pushes back, its strength holding me nonetheless, naked ground. I could run and hide, find sun and light, never ceasing to move away from myself. But this stillness, when the days grow short, is time for the soul to go beneath. To search the tenebrous corridors of existence for gems of knowing left untouched and emerge with a radiance found only in the most ominous shadows. Counting the rings of age, I find evolution in each cycle, this life that tests and turns. Each line a blessing of burgeoning truth in this quest from birth to death. For what is incarnation if not the most exquisite gift and our time here is short for all we have to do wow that that's absolutely um, thank you stunning and uh i'm going to have to <laughs> i'm gonna to have to go over that and absorb it and uh, digest that again but that is phenomenal um can't believe we're actually talking about that now as well. I mean, that's you inside the tunnel chiseling away until totally. this thing falls off. And there's the gemstone. <laughs> but that's like, so this is it, right? You need to get out of your own way yeah. when you're really writing something. Totally. And the best lyrics are the ones that you don't fully understand until months later. They sort of like, they're ahead of the curve. They're sort of predicting how you're going to feel, you know. Um, and, and I think that I personally have missed being able to do that because I think that 
workload has been like make music for making money, library music, sync music for films, uh, this kind of stuff that's not where I am best. I'm only okay at that. I'm not my best at that. So recently I have finally, after talking to people over this, like last year I spent four months in Spain, played a lot of music, went through every single sort of aspect of who I was, you know, acoustic, experimental, and now I've come out the other end of it. And uh, I played a song in a church, local church here, and Ableton looped it up. And I listened to that, and I don't fully understand what I'm saying, <laughs> but I know that that is something that's far more than I am. I'm not channeling it. It's sort of like it's coming from somewhere else, and I'm guiding its existence. And and that is what you're describing in your poetry writing. Maybe for yourself as well, you have, you've obviously had to be wary of commercial pitfalls, haven't you? But you've also had to be a little bit wary of how they're good for you in some ways. You feel free from that now. Uh, well, you know, not totally free. I just finished working on a on a track for a a movie trailer company. Nice. Um, which was wonderful to do. It was for, with um a producer out in LA, so we did it all, you know, uh, mm. through Zoom or whatever. And I recorded the vocal over here and sent it over. Um, but he trained with Hans Zimmer, so it was kind of like beautiful string arrangements and. Mm. Um, that was it was really exciting and inspiring to do, and I think I guess it's like it's like you were saying it's you know you've got you've got to do those things. I mean, those things are rewarding in their own way, you know. And actually, to be fair, I think because I'd been keeping this poetry daily poetry practice, the lyrics flowed from that place anyway. Because and mm. also because of it being like a film trailer piece rather than an actual song, it was a lot. It was kind of quite open in terms of structure mm. um but you're totally you know when you say about getting out of your own way i think that is that's hopefully what we're all aiming for you know i mean when you think about painters and you know all creative people i think i think the magic of it the thing we tap into is mm. something beyond ourselves something bigger than ourselves and once we can tap into that, it's like that's when the magic happens and and um, we can sort of give up our preconditions and our ego and our, you know, whatever. I think it's just such a privilege to be able to access that, you know. <laughs> just... Yeah. How do you access it? Oh, well... Over the years, I, I've i sometimes kind of used meditation. Um, mm -hmm. I guess really what I do is just... Nowadays, I, can, I guess I can access it a bit more freely. And again, that's where the daily poetry practice came in as well. I think that's really helping. Just, it's like a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it, you know. Mm. Um, that... Which sounds like a contradiction because we're talking about it not coming from us, and then I'm talking about a muscle. But it's just that it's like a door that, or, or a a place that you go to. That yeah. um, it's it's. I feel nowadays I kind of almost picture it like a river flowing beside me, um, that I can just lean into, you know. Ah, and, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so. That, 
that's that's exactly it because so uh, for me tapping the flow was originally started because i wanted to theorize about creativity being a constantly streaming source of information that we creative people have managed to hone our instincts and and our tool set to be able to grab into that and just grab something from it and, and make the most of it and what you're talking about through the poetry daily thing is keeping your tools ready you know to, so that when it comes you're able to i guess channel it into something that's translatable to everybody else yeah i mean i guess also it's a like i said earlier it's about trust you know mm. and it's very easy to you know I, I i hear lots of people say oh i can't write or i can't sing and all of these things and and um i think you know everybody's creative in their own way and but it's such a it's such a an issue of trust, you know. And I think the thing that maybe keeps some people... I mean, thank God not everybody is doing what we do because otherwise it would be way more competitive <laughs> anyway. But, you know, I think some people need security and just to do a day job, you know. I mean, mm. sometimes I'd love to have that kind of simple mm. existence where you go in, do a job, come... Well, not that many people can go to work these days, but, mm. you know, you go and do a job from nine to five and then you come home and you don't have to think about it at all. And you just, you know, chill out. Whereas I think for us as sort of creative people who do our own thing, I think every moment is our is our work, you know, whether it looks like it or not, it's our work. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, the, we're the ones with our heads stuck out the train window trying to climb onto the roof. A lot of people yeah. are just inside watching the world go by. <laughs> yeah, but people think we're total idiots and they're probably right. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'll be kind of doing the washing up. And it, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I like to live alone or at least live with, you know, live with people who understand mm. that even if I'm silently doing the washing up, I might not want to chat because... Uh, in that process, I'm actually I'm actually writing something, or I'm deep in a in a kind of process that takes me to writing something. You know, it's mm -hmm. like a sort of zone that um, I like to inhabit um, for a lot of the day. Um, yeah. You know, without distractions of kind of. I mean, I can't do small talk anyway, but any sort of chit chat, you know. Um, even putting the radio on is distracting to that. Yeah, see, these headphones, I wear them all the time. People think I'm listening to music, but I'm not. <laughs> you know? Somebody told me, actually, because I was talking to somebody about uh, how to manage that in a, you know, when you have housemates and stuff. And she said that she lived yeah. in a house where basically they all had um, headphones. And when they had the headphones on, it was a cue to not be interrupted which is a great mm -hmm. so anybody out there who's living in a communal household but needs this creative space just bang those headphones on and have it as you know you don't get you don't get interrupted when you're wearing them so it's a, it's a good policy yeah yeah i i think it's uh, doing the washing up is also i like find it useful as well you know um and i'm doing gardening now for my uncle and that's <laughs> like that's incredible isn't it gardening because it is creative and but also it's so therapeutic so, I don't know, it just feels like you're doing something essential and your brain is also doing the subconscious symphony thing at the same time. Totally. You know? Any of those sort of tasks and just walking in nature or whatever or walking in the city, if you live in the city, it's just with those headphones on so you don't with get distracted. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing about um, the the writing process and, you know, you were saying about tapping into that 
flow, you know, so often I'll find that if I sit down to write a song, say it's a song that I need to sort of write to order or whatever, the worst thing I can do is sit down at the laptop and just go, right, I've got to write a song now, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, again, the sort of poetry practice is helping with that, but, you know, if I get stuck on something, I'll go out for a walk and listen to the track on headphones or whatever, and, you know, it's almost like putting it on a sort of back burner rather than having it in the Mm. forefront of your mind somehow Mm. triggers that process and Mm. frees up the flow somehow. You're slow cooking it in the Mm. back burner rather than flaming it in the grill. You know, it's, it's, um, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting one to, uh, to think about, um, constantly writing something all the time, aside from keeping your tools, uh, ready for the job, you know, you maybe are chipping away at something inside yourself as well and constantly unearthing more about yourself, putting it into play for other people to enjoy, but you're not doing it for anybody but yourself at this point, are you? Well, that's an interesting question. I was thinking about that because um, I've noticed that the process of the poetry writing is very self-exploratory. You know, sometimes I look out and kind of describe things outside, but a lot of it is in sort of internal work or, you know, looking inwards. But... Uh, the, the the founder of humanistic psychotherapy, uh, a guy called Carl Rogers. Um, I can't quote him directly because I don't have his, you know, his book in front book in front of me. But mm-hmm. you know, he said something that really struck a chord with me. In that, you know, he said, "What's most personal to you is what's most universal." Hmm. And I think that's really true. And. You know, there's the cliche of the singer-songwriter that, you know, their most overused word is I. Um, But I do really think that that's very true, what Rogers says there, that, you know, each one of us, if we really tap into the sort of depths of our emotions, although it's deeply personal, it also has that universal appeal. And so... It's almost like, you know, you were talking about excavating and digging into tunnels of the psyche, you know, and you're in sort of in a world where you might never have been before. And Mm. through doing that, it's almost like we can be clearing the way for other people to kind of make a similar journey, you know, or tap Mm. into things that other people recognize as part of their journey that they've already begun, but they might not have made joined those dots, you know, Mm -hmm. and... You know, when I'm listening to music, sometimes I'll hear a song and it's like that person has written that song from my heart, you know, and that's when it speaks so truly and that's when it saves your life, you know. It's like you might be having a terrible time and then listen to a song where somebody touches into what you're feeling and it's like, shit, I'm not alone. That's amazing, mm. you know. And, and you know, as human beings, we're, you know, essentially born and die alone yeah but at the same time we're part of a bigger whole and um our common humanity is what keeps us going i think and Mm -hmm. what fires us you know in especially in this creative process that we're talking about Mm. it's about it's it's our job i think to um to dig deep and to to show that 
it's okay to put that out there as well, you know? And so with that in mind, with what you're describing in your poetic works, then I think because you've allowed yourself to go there for personal reasons, that what you're uncovering is going to be, as you say, so universal as a result of that, because these are, you're breaking them down to the, to this point where they make themselves revealed to you. And that has to be a universal point to which to see them, doesn't it? They're not obscured anymore. These are gemstones. Now you need to figure a way of coming out of the tunnel and putting them up there for people to see. And if yeah. people don't get them, you still have to love them, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it can be quite scary as well, putting it out there. You know, I've been yeah. I've been putting some of them up on Instagram and, you know, it's like that, oh, gosh, uh, yeah. this is really personal stuff, you know. Uh, but it's, and also quite often I'll put them up when I've just written them and then come back and, you know, I... Also, I think an interesting thing is um, that creative process is kind of in two parts somehow. Um, I don't know whether you find a similar thing. So you kind of tap into this flow. You know, when I sit there to write these poems, I kind of tune into this part in the core of me, in the centre of my chest, and think, okay, what needs to come Um and it's very much from that place rather than from the head. And mm. then, um, I mean, I want at some point to make these, you know, to release these poems in a book. And I'm sure mm. I will then go uh, go back over them and mm -hmm. there'll be an editing process, which is much more engaging the head mm. and checking that you don't repeat words and you don't, you know, that maybe there's a better way to express that, that particular line or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um you know, so it's kind of very much a two-part process, like a free flow and then a slight editing process. It's almost like two sides of us that come into play, you know. Yeah, one is the miner and the other one is the polisher, you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm. It's a, and I think it's very important that the polisher is not involved in getting the stones and well, vice versa, you know. Yeah, and I think that distinction is what, helps us to be creative and to trust that process because mm. you know like I said so many people will say no I can't sing I can't write because that editing that editor is so big in their mind you know mm. that is is kind of there blocking everything going no you can't mm. do that no that's shit you know mm. as soon as you write something on the page no shit and uh you know you know if you read any kind of creative texts I, I remember years ago reading um on writing by um oh gosh what's his name the guy who wrote jaws anyway if you read any text on writing you'll be told to just write you know without yeah. thinking about it and without um without any editing process just write even if it's nonsense just write mm -hmm whatever comes, and then go back and read it. And that's when the surprises happen, like we were saying, you know, that's when the kind of, oh, wow, what was, the, where did that come from? And mm. then you can start to shape from there. And you can, you know, you might find just one sentence that lights you up, and then it becomes like about, all about that sentence. And then that leads you mm. down an avenue that you wouldn't have even begun to explore if, if you hadn't, if that bit hadn't come out. 
And, mm. uh, you know, so it's like a, a magical mystery tour, isn't it? At times where you just like, you're off, yeah. you know, it's just like that one little yeah. thing and then you're off, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I've been guilty of being, I guess I, I did have writer's block. I had it uh, until I said the words, I had it. I had it all the time, you know, but it was the only person telling me I had writer's block was myself. And of course, it, in it, and as soon as you adopt that sort of terminology, you're in trouble, you know. Um, but I went to a songwriting workshop thing with this guy, Chris Difford from Squeeze, and, and it was mm. cool. Like, I th- and I thought we'd be writing songs about this, that and the other, and it'd be very sort of, uh, you know, collaborative songwriting, which I'm not really a huge fan of, I'll be honest with you. I can do it, but like I said, not as well as other people. But the first task he set us was to write a song about somewhere you grew up. It could be about anything. And, and I just went, OK, I have permission now. And then I wrote this song and yeah, it sort of started off bass there, but it became something else. And it's exactly what you're talking about. The trust was there. And, and it's silly to use, I give myself permission to do this. And I mean, it's nonsense to have to give yourself permission. Um, but I did think that I needed to give myself permission just to get out of my own way as well, you know? Totally. Yeah. And, and, and also to let yourself be uncreative for a while as well sometimes, you know, I think... Mm. I think it comes in ebbs and flows, you know, and not to give yourself a hard time if you're not doing anything because that's still digging the soil, you know. It's mm-hmm. still feeding the soil maybe. Maybe the soil needs to be fallow, fallow for a while in order for the kind of yeah. new shoots to come out, you know. It's like, you know, like I said, I think I think every moment is part of our creative process, whether we're actually making something or doing something or not you know it all feeds mm. in to that whatever comes out next you know mm. and and i think it's yeah. very easy to to give ourselves a hard time if we feel blocked or whatever but it's mm. it's bound to happen isn't it you spend a life you know as being creative you can't you can't do it all the time yeah, uh, yeah, I think I tried too hard uh, and I bought these songwriting books and I was like, oh, okay, cool, you can rhyme this and oh, that works. And then, God, now I've got to forget all that knowledge because it's like, it just throws you off the scent. You know, you're following somebody else's trail there. That's not right. It's not going to take you to the gemstones. That's going to take you to the mall where they sell horrible smelling perfume and stuff. I don't care about that. Yeah. I want to throw a piece of coal through the window, you know, but I need to find that piece of coal. So I love that um, analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, sod, yeah, sod I, the kind of off the off the peg songwriting school. Just yeah, it that's can for be a, so destructive, right? To, to uh, learn yeah. that stuff, but then you have to go and unlearn it, and that's oh my god. And I am, you know, I think to think outside the box, you need to know what's in the box, but maybe not. Maybe guess. <laughs> have a go. Yes, yeah, I have experienced that at times, and that sort of yeah pressure to write in that way, mm. and. It's to me, it's soul destroying. It's it's like it makes me feel quite queasy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it works for some people, you know. I mean, you know, a lot of the sort of big pop stars out there have teams of writers. You know, when you look at the writing credits on, um, you know, Beyonce's last album or whatever, it's like it's a whole team. You know, mm. and I, and I, it kind of makes me think, God, how where's the magic in that? You know, mm. it's it's yeah. it's like a it's an industry. It's like a production line, 
You know, I mean, yes, yeah, some great songs come out of it, but, um, I yeah, I, I, I let them go on with it. You know, that's that's cool. You know, if people want to work that way, but it's not really my vibe at all. Wouldn't it be interesting to hear something that Beyonce just sat down on her own to write then? Mm. You know, yeah, about someone, someone. Oh, the first line writer and the third line writer and the person who wrote the fourth word <laughs> in the last line. You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a scary world out there. I mean. The sort of commercialization of music is 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 quite, um, I guess, quite terrifying, isn't it? In a way, mm-hmm. in terms of this flow we're talking about, I guess it's that thing that I guess we touched into at the beginning, just about once you start making it about money, uh, you lose that magic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we all need to make a living. You know, mm. and. Uh, you know, I feel blessed to have done that through making music for over 20 years. But that's getting more and more difficult because of streaming and stuff like that. So, you know, but Mm. at the same time, I just cannot allow myself to worry or to um, make the earning part of it a priority, you know. I just, again, it's that's another aspect of the trust, isn't it? Just to trust that you will be yeah. okay and yeah yeah and also let's let's face it that streaming site is so bad there's no fixing that i mean apparently i think it was gary newman said that he had a million streams on spotify and he made 30 quid which is an <laughs> which let me put that in perspective here spotify if you're listening that is enough to pay for three months of spotify brilliant <laughs> so all you need to pay for three months of spotify is to have a million streams of your own song what's going on there <laughs> I think it goes back to that whole thing of, you know, I mean, I quite often sort of talk to people who kind of aren't in music and, you know, and they kind of assume it's a hobby. Hmm. Um, but it's like they don't put the two things together. Oh, it's your job. It's how you mm-hmm. pay the bills. Really? You know, it's like, and, and, and I think now there's a whole generation who get music for free, you know, and well, probably two generations. I don't know. I mean, mm. it just doesn't arise to pay for music. You know, you just stream it. You just watch it on YouTube, and mm. um, which is great. On the one hand, <laughs> you know, technically music should and all art should be free. Mm. But at the same time, how do we live from it? Mm. You know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think now that I've got some music on Spotify, but I think what I'll do for the next record is just put it on my website for free and suggest if someone wants to donate to this, that and the other, then do it because I'd rather that tiny amount of money went to uh, a justifiable cause or, I mean, I'm probably going to, they can donate 0.00001 pence if they like, and that's a sort of similar ratio. So uh, <laughs> Spotify aren't getting, you know, kept kept alive by it, you know. But it, anyway, it can't be about, it can't be about making money. It's got to be first and foremost about making art, making music and touching things deep within yourself and presenting them to other people. So that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, you know, take take me back, though. I'm very interested, actually. There was there's Because where I'm at now at the moment, and I've always been in this sort of place like, oh, singer, songwriter, folk, all that stuff. But no, I don't like I don't really enjoy that. I go off and I go crazy and stuff like that. 
And I know for yourself, you come from a folk tradition, don't you? You know, but then you in Lamb, that's obviously not where you ended up. How, I mean, there's many questions I have about this, but how was it for you when you first started doing that? What did your mother say to you? Oh, my mom has always been so supportive. I mean, she's just amazing. She's just one mm. of those people that, uh, you know, just always, always encouraged me in whatever I did. So, yeah. And, you know, and she was, you know, she was the one that opened the door for me, you know, because I grew up listening to her sing, you know, mm. and I think that's another thing, you know, about sort of digging those tunnels and finally clearing away for people, you know. I guess so often um, people don't even imagine themselves doing a thing like that because they haven't seen anybody they know doing it and so they think that's another world over there that people do and live in L.A., mm. you know. Mm. They, don't, they don't do that and go down to the local supermarket, you know. And so I grew up with my mum singing and, uh, you know, would go to folk clubs when I was little and I guess grew up singing from, you know, I think, you know, from as soon as I could make a sound, I was singing, you know. So, um, and, you know, folk clubs are, as you know, you know as well, is it's, folk clubs are such a democratic place, you know, everybody gets a chance to stand up and sing if they want to, you know, mm. and everybody needs to be, you know, stays quiet for them as well. I guess it's like the old school equivalent of today's open mics, you know. Yeah. Only there wasn't yeah. a mic in folk clubs. <laughs> you just had to sing completely yeah. acoustically in a pub somewhere and, you know. Yeah. So that was a really powerful kind of starting point, I guess. Um Yeah. But worlds away from from Lamb in many ways. Yeah, from where you went. Yeah, totally. Was well, there ever a sort of was there ever people saying to you like, "Why are you doing that? Why don't you just do this?" You know, how did you deal with that? I'm sure there must have been people saying that to you. How did you deal with it? Not at the time, because no. when uh, you know, I didn't I didn't really have a musical career until we formed Lamb. I was a photographer mm. in Manchester. Back in the day, um, you know, I'd been in bands when I was a teenager and stuff like that. Um, but mm. I'd ended up being a photographer and doing kind of music and fashion photography in Manchester. And but at the same time, I was listening to pirate stations. And back then, in sort of like the early nineties, there was all this kind of early breakbeat stuff before it was even called drum and bass. Mm. And I was kind of listening to this. And it just really pricked up, you know, kind of got, got me thinking about, ooh, what would happen if I could write songs with kind of that kind of, those kind of beats? And that was kind of, that sort of niggled away at me while I was still working as a photographer mm -hmm. and kind of made some inroads of working with uh, producer friends, but they were kind of quite, probably kind of too conventional for what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and that's when I, uh, a friend of mine who was a DJ mentioned Andy Barlow and, you know, I got, got in touch with Andy and we just went into the studio and just threw ideas around, you know, without, you know, again, without much kind of preconception or without planning it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it just took its own momentum from there really. Um, 
So even though it wasn't, you know, that sort of traditional folk background that I'd come from, it had its own thing. And, you know, I Mm. think, especially if you listen to our first album, you can really hear that in, in the songwriting, you know, and in the, uh, sort of the way I use my voice, I think. Mm. Um, Mm. so it was a kind of folk in a way, you know, I mean, folk music is contemporary music when you think about it. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And, and grime, you know, grime is music, folk music, essentially, isn't it? You know, everything like that. Yeah, I mean, we were doing mm. our own folk music. Mm. Um, although, although I have to say, the you know, uh, you know, the the worst uh, travesties of that nature, uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't. Yeah, let's not go down there. But um, <laughs> so no, people people didn't. Um, didn't say why aren't you doing folk but Mm. there did come a time when we split the band in uh, 2004 where I kind of started yearning to do something more stripped back again Um, Mm. and I think it was a time also when Andy and I were going in such different directions as human beings as well that um, it was a good time to kind of strip things back and just take some time apart away from that project Mm-hmm. Um, I also split up from the father of my kids and moved out of London. And it was just like, a, <laughs> mm. it was a proper, you know, death and rebirth, really. Just strip everything away and start again almost, except obviously not my children who came with me. Um, yeah. You know, and we went and lived out in the sticks in a, in a crazy community in an old recording studio out in the southeast in England and uh, it was a very big sort of rebuild process and that's when I did my first solo album which was which was really back to basics and back to those folk roots you know mm. so yeah yeah I, I remember it well I think uh, it was um, I mean that's when I first really discovered that side of you you know I wasn't aware of it in Lamb at all that there was that side you know even though vocally and ex- you were quite experimental in the way you were singing probably more because you were bringing folk elements to the craziness um, before we get on to that, though, like what what was that first when you played with Andy first when you did that? What did that feel like? Did it feel like this is new? This is inspiring me to come up with these words. I'm I'm going into this tunnel in this way now, and I'm grabbing this, and I can throw it on that fire over there, and it's going to turn into a firework display. Was it was it explosive? It was. It was quite magical because. You know, I, I th- I'm sure you, you, you'll you recognise this when you have, it's like with any, with these sort of creative things, again, it's not really from the mind. And so mm. you might have an idea of something you want to create, uh, but you can't explain it to someone else, you know. So you can't say, okay, so let's do this, this, this and this, and this is what I want to get out of it. You know, in in other forms, you might have a meeting and do a flowchart or, or you know, a spreadsheet, but not in a creative, you know, it doesn't really work on something creative. So you have to kind of just throw yourself in and get yourselves out of the way. And that's exactly what we did. You know, we just kind of had, you know, Andy had some free studio time out in Leeds where he'd done somebody, you know, he'd done some work for somebody who had a nice mm-hmm. studio. And so we went and slept on the studio floor and just kind of 
yeah, threw ideas at each other. And it's, um, I remember, uh, I d- I do you remember Fila Brasilia? Mm-hmm. They, they did an early remix for us. Anyway, Steve Cobby, um, he's also very much into Zen Buddhism, which is kind of one of my big, I guess, lifelong, well, not lifelong, but long-term influences. Mm. Um, he did, they did one of our early remixes of Cotton Wool. And I remember him saying, yeah, it's like throwing stones together and something comes out, you know, it's mm. like that very Zen process of throwing stones together. Um, and, and you, you're surprised at what comes out and that, you know, it's, it's, you know, with, with one of you doing it, it's, this thing comes out quite often that you didn't expect, but then you bring another person into that equation and start throwing stones at each other. And you're, you know, it's even probably even more of a kind of mm. um, surprise what comes out because it wouldn't and have come out it, with just one yeah. of you. Isn't that then where you find, like you say, but you find something totally new that mm. you didn't know you were looking for. Like you say, you didn't have the language to do it, but in teaming up with somebody else, something totally new emerges and then that inspires you in other ways and you keep feeding this new thing until you've got something that's completely off the charts. Yeah, and, uh, totally. That's what you did, isn't it? You know. Yeah, and that's the joy of especially writing a first album, you know, yeah. because you're still surprised by it yourself, you know. It's like so many of those songs on that first album were just like, my God, where did that come from? You know, yeah, yeah. And we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, we didn't, we didn't really, yeah. Like I said, we didn't have a plan. We just, we just would do it. It was like an adventure. We were like two mm. kids in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a, in a toy shop kind of. Did Did you feel called by the music to then bring it to life at some point? Did I feel what? Sorry. I, it's because I, with these type of things, I often wonder if that music was dying to exist. It's in the creative flow, and it chose yourself and Andy to sort of birth it. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. Again, that's I think that's really true. It's like sometimes it's. I mean, people often describe the creative process as like making a you know a sculpture out of stu- out of rock. You know, when you mm. it's in there, and you've just got to kind of chip away to find it. You know, mm. and yeah, you know, again, it's it's just all about being able to throw yourself into that process and trusting that, you know, something will come. And I, I guess it's it's kind of like alchemy as well with some people. It doesn't work, you know. Mm. And when you you know when you collaborate with people, it's 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 a very, you know, I think you kind of know you're onto something and that's what happened with Andy and I in that those early stages we you know we knew we were onto something we didn't know what it was but mm-hmm. <laughs> it was fun so we carried on yeah yeah and 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 then after a while like we were speaking about leaving a field fallow that's essentially what you did with that in setting it aside obviously you needed to sort of let the field recover so that it was able to produce more stuff maybe at the time you didn't realize that and you did your own folky sort of stuff um, in was that at the time you did that was that a solution to a problem or was that just an, like another door that's like oh I think I'll go in this door did you need to do that I needed to do it I don't know that it was a solution to a problem I think it was just that you know that that thing that we keep coming back to that kind of thing in your core that just goes 
you know, I can I can feel it as a sort of almost physical pull from mm. my core to just ah, oh, this needs to come out, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's definitely what that was. Um, but yeah, as I said, we'd done four albums as Lamb, and I think you know we were signed to a major label which started, you know, they let us be for our first album because they didn't know what the hell they'd signed either, (laughs) you know. Uh, So there was a lot of freedom. And then, of course, the second album, there's all this expectation. Mm. Um, And then the men in suits in the finance department start saying, oh, this isn't making as much money as we hoped it would. So can they, you know, then they get the A&R men to try and make you sound like more commercial or whatever. And so it becomes this journey with all these people interfering with it and trying to shape you. And uh, that feels very counterproductive, you know. Um, And also I think myself and Andy Barlow kind of started to kind of pull in different directions through that process as well. Mm. Um, you know, and I also, I had my first son, Ruben, when we did the second album. So I, again, that changed my perspective a lot, becoming a parent and, um, I was kind of quite clean living and the rest of the band, when we went on tour, were far from it, um, which led us into very different territories as well. So, yeah. So, yeah. So when it came to stripping everything back and going into making that first solo album it was just a need to sort of follow my own path I think you know after after feeling pulled in all these different directions and you know the fact that it was timed with moving out to Ridge Farm and living in this crazy community where I basically was rebuilding myself as well because I'd come out of a relationship that had been very destructive and um Mm. I'd lost a lot of who I was in the process. Um, the combination of that and the pull, different pulls of Lamb and major label existence and so on. It was just like, I, I kind of, um, I, I kind of ran up, you know, into the countryside and into this community with this sort of sense of who, who am I anymore? And just that need mm. to find myself and need to sort of just tap into, um, yeah, regaining some sense of who I was and where I was going. And that first solo album, Beloved One, was very much a part of that. Yeah, I, I have this image of, of um, I think initially when yourself and Andy went into the forest to find the fruit, you went into the forest and it was just yourself and him. And the, the animals were coming and the birds and the bees and they were all flying around and you're sitting there going, wow, this is brilliant. And then the heavy guys with the heavy machinery come in and scare all the, all the creatures <laughs> away. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then you needed to reconnect with that yourself. So, for beloved one, you did s- slip back into the wilderness and sit there, and eventually the birds start landing on your arms again, and you're like, "Okay, phew, I can relax and allow it to come," you know. And uh, that's a beautiful that. story, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <Yeah, it's> just- <laughs> but yes, absolutely. That's that's that sums it up. Mm. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was quite something moving from wood green in London uh, as a single parent, which is, you know, would have been a very isolated experience to living in a community where uh, in the countryside 
in a in what used to be a residential recording studio. So it was a really beautiful place with a load of very interesting individuals who were basically, you know, everyone there was all about kind of freedom and self-discovery. So it was a perfect place to sort of rebuild myself, mm. you know, and to, and to kind of start that writing and recording process of a new record and a new chapter, I guess. Mm. Um, and yeah, the birds definitely did start to come and, you know, visit again and, and, um, settle and, um, mm. you know, tuning into nature and tuning into my own inner nature again, you know, and just finding, mm. finding that connection again. It's a, a beautiful record, beloved one. Very, very. Thank amazing. you. You know, and 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 I think um, obviously there were some difficulties with with playing it live and stuff for various reasons that, that that we won't go into. But I think that album stands totally on its own in the field of, of folk music, and and I think because the, the 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 voice was so forward, there was such an essentiality to the performances. Um, and I know that uh, the producer Emre worked really hard on them, but I think that. Equally, they he he did, I think, enable them to sound as they were when you delivered them. I mean, they were live performances, weren't they? The, the voices. I think you recorded vocal takes like two takes, and that was it. You know, you were obviously in touch with the essence of the song at the time. Well, I've always been a bit of a. I can't really do a lot of vocal takes because you lose the vibe. So you know, yeah. I just love those kind of first takes. Um, mm. <laughs> it was quite funny actually because the 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 studio. Uh, that we used at Ridge Farm, it had been the sort of residential studio, but one of the reasons why they stopped was because they were in the Gatwick airport flight path. Um, so so often we'd be doing a vocal take and we had to stop because a plane oh. went over. Um, oh, God. But, Wait, and also, did, 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 did Emre get the flight path map out then? <laughs> <laughs> you would expect that of Emre, wouldn't you? But yeah. I don't think he did. Um, oh. But also, I had to um, run and hide from my little son, Solly, my younger son, because he was at a very clingy stage and oh. didn't like me going anywhere without him. And so I'd have to I'd have quite limited time periods in the studio as well um, to do those vocal takes. And I'd have to kind of like, you know, somehow get Solly occupied doing something with some with a friend at the at the at the farm where we were and then just kind of run to the studio and get these vocal takes done so <laughs> it was oh, it's amazing wow it was you got involved for the second record didn't you Stephen? did you, you I, I yes got... i did you'd done the first record you'd released the first record and uh i don't know i came over from ireland i met uh, my friend Michael Fassbender introduced me to Paddy McCool. Mm. Paddy McCool went to college with Andy, I think, and then I went down to a party in Andy's house. And I don't know, I don't remember the party much at all. It was pretty crazy. But the Usually next where? morning, I remember, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know what they're like. Um, but the next morning, I was sitting on the on the on the grass in front of Andy's house with a with a bottle of whiskey and my guitar, and I just started playing. And then this crazy Icelandic dude came over to me and started jamming <laughs> along with me, and that was Otto Marunnison and. Uh, we stayed there for the whole day, just playing nonstop. And, and then I think Andy invited me to join his hoof project. Uh, ah, yes. But then I think you called me or something and said, uh, would I be interested in coming to play on your for your tour? So that's where I got involved for touring yes. the first record. Yeah, yeah. 
we were touring. It was the end of tour because when we first started touring, beloved one, um, I had about six people on stage. It was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and then realised that that was pretty impractical and very expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think I, we stripped it back to just the three of us, you, me, and Emra, didn't we? Yeah, well, I think, like, initially, like, I was brought in to replace Dan and Otter on the, on, on, to replace two guitar players, so I came in and did that. <laughs> but, but he, he, and then eventually, God, Emery had his gig pig, didn't he? Like, yeah. that sort of Dalek <laughs> slash washing machine drum kit <laughs> that we dragged to Australia, I think. Did we take it to Australia? We Do did. they still when make the those things? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, to be honest, like... <laughs> They only only one person ever bought one, and we know him. So, yeah. Gig, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was cool. It was it was really nice to play that. Look, obviously difficult because Emre's structure in life is quite difficult in in regards to performing stuff live. And and I, I you know I felt a lot of challenges with that. Um, yeah. And I wonder if for the second record, essentially the same machinery that kicked into your Lamb career sort of came into into play somewhat and detaching you from the initial essence of the song, you know. Um, it yeah, it became a very different process on that second record. Hmm. Um, yeah, in, in re- far too laboured, I think. Um, hmm. I mean, I still like aspects of that record, but um, yeah, I think I think it lost some of the freedom of the first record. Um, I mean, again, it was that pressure because I got that beloved one got Mercury nominated. Hmm. And so there was suddenly this, oh, right, I've got something to live up to here um, as well. So I think that was a pressure. Hmm. And it's always, it's never a good thing. <laughs> you chose to make two second albums in your career. You should have just skipped the second <laughs> album and gone straight on to the third one. You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe we should just, the second album should be just a load of fart noises or something and then yeah. get on with the third. <laughs> I think Emery could have done some wonderful things with those noises without being a technical genius, you know. <laughs> but just shelve it. Yeah, it, I think it's it's that album. Like there were some incredible moments on there, some incredible songs, and I, and I think obviously when we did the Union Chapel thing, which was I, I don't know how you did that gig. I mean, I know that your sister had. That's right. Had, and uh, I remember being backstage, and I think we you got the news, and we were listening to. Um, uh, Rage Against the Machine, jumping around, headbanging like lunatics before appearing like very angelic like on the stage and playing that very difficult gig i remember emory had some microphones on me and i wasn't allowed to move because we couldn't get a live sound <laughs> it, was a, it was a tough gig but w- when we played the songs they really really stood up you know there were some brilliant songs on that record and i think that the production probably we, we all worked too hard to make it something it wasn't supposed to be you know which happens yeah, I think quite often. I mean, again, uh, you're sure. I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Is that if you, if you kind of record songs before you've played them live, it's quite often they they some somehow take on new life when you start to play them out in front of an yeah. audience, don't they? And it's like, you know, in a way, I guess the old school way of kind of going around and touring the songs first is a really good idea, you know. Um, it seems like that's been lost a lot in in a lot of you know the modern way of doing things. Like you want to release your new album before you tour it, you know, and that mm. seems to be have become a bit of a you know recognised cycle in the industry, you know. But it, there is a real argument for kind of 
you know, touring those songs first and kind of letting them, because then they, they, they take on their own life force and, you know, have, their, uh, have a, like a metamorphosis in a way. Should um, we just do that then? Yeah. Let's do that from now on. I mean, that's like, I think you're right. Like Bonnie Prince Billy, for example, will road test the songs before he records the album, you know, so that they, they know exactly what the cycle should be, the exchange between the song and the audience as well and all that sort of thing. And the exchange between the players and the performers and you do this bit when I do this bit, which isn't defined by tempo, click track, uh, sonic perfection in the studio. It's defined by reality in life and the energy force of life itself. You know, I, I think for myself, like I'm going to make a record, um, but I'm going to do a live album as, in as much as I can, even though there'll be new songs, but they'll be live. Whether there's anybody there to hear them at the moment doesn't matter, but I want the voice and the guitar to have come from the same place. Yes. And yes, I'm using loops and I've got Ableton running and all that sort of stuff. And it's quite mental, but there is a, an essentiality to that. So if you can capture that, uh, you know, it's like it's like capturing some wild creature and presenting it in its best light rather than just stuffing it, shooting it dead putting it on a plinth and going here's my new album you want to go that's my new album flying around there and that's <laughs> yeah. it there chasing those birds you know <laughs> yeah because so many of us lose something when that red light goes on and mm. you know it's like oh right it's got to be perfect now and you lose so much in that you know so often in that in that whole process I mean that's one of the strengths of people like Bonnie Prince Billy is the fact that you know his records are warts and all really you yeah. know He's like the Charles Bukowski of uh, songwriting, isn't he? You know, he's like, he just, he's just like this dude who just does his thing, you know, and doesn't seem, doesn't seem to feel like he, he has to kind of hone it to perfection. And I think that's definitely part of its charm. You'd ruin it if you tried to perfect it, you know? Yeah, because its, you it's whole essence you know? is the roughness. Yeah. I mean, some of the songs, it sounds like he's making them up as he goes along. <laughs> probably Which it probably is, is you know? <laughs> but that's why they work you know and it's not like everybody should do that but damn it like he is definitely not in his own way yeah he, he's like he's multiple personalities calling himself forwards you know and he just does it yeah and he's a he's a shining beacon um uh, of light for anybody who just needs to get on with stuff you know totally. he's doing some stuff a lot of stuff with bill callahan at the moment and, uh, you know, I've, I've listened to some of it. It doesn't always work, but the fact that it's there is much more important than it not being there, you know. Well, and isn't it amazing that people just do that? You know, they put stuff out. It's like, this might work, this might not, but I'm putting it out there anyway, you know. It's like, hmm. uh, you know, I do love that sort of, you know, those people that just churn stuff out and, you know, without any... You know, well, there must be an editing process, but, you know, when people are so prolific and that, yeah, there's going to be some stuff that, you know, the audience won't like as much. But I love the fact that it's like, you know, I'm just, you know, that there's no shame in putting it out there. Yeah, because I think if he doesn't put it out there, then you won't find the diamond in the rough because that won't have a place to go either, you know. Yeah, um, and that's what he does. You got to wade through all this stuff to get to it, but when you get to it, it's going to be amazing. And yeah. it's not to say that the stuff that he puts out that's not as good as the other stuff isn't better than a lot of people's good stuff, you know? Because it's <laughs> <laughs> he's just particularly good. Let's go. Let's be honest, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. What's What's next for you in terms of um, Lamb or yourself, your own stuff? Where do you go now? Uh, difficult to say because who knows what's yeah. going to happen with music. Um, 
for the time being, I I don't think there's going to be... Well, I'm feeling a solo record might be... Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I've got some ideas for solo songs, but I'm terrible at kind of actually seeing them through to the end because there's no deadline. Um, so I'd like to do a solo record at some point uh, that mm. will be more piano based because it's become a bit of a joy to me to play piano and it brings out different sides of what I do. And I guess I'm kind of moving away from that sort of more folky sound with acoustic guitars to more spacious. I listen to a lot of Oliver Arnold's and oh, yeah. um, wow. Nils Fram yeah. and people like that, mm. that I really mm. love. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just really feeling that kind of spaciousness and the sort of, uh, the, the sort of palette that piano brings. Yeah. Uh, and I want to bring out a book of poetry, um, and you know really sort of uh, yeah bring out bring together these poems that I'm writing each day um and also looking into a way of channeling that using poetry as a as a kind of psychotherapeutic tool um through the the training I'm doing you know yeah it's it's something that I think I, you know like I said I want to be able to encourage more people to tap into that mm. process, whether they think they're poets or not, you mm. know, I just think it's an amazing. Yeah, it's the attempt to go there that 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 sort of enables uh, repair, isn't it? As well, you don't mm. have to create a masterpiece to have understood a lot more about yourself at the time, you know. <clears throat> it's kind of like self therapy, mm. writing poems. I think. Mm. Um, I've been reading uh, Lem Sisse's autobiography recently and right. you know he had such a challenging upbringing from being a baby you know uh, and he discovered poetry when he was 12 years old and it was his savior completely mm. you know because he you know came up against so much as as you know as from from being a baby to to growing into adulthood, and I think poetry was his saving grace all the way through, you know. Um, so I'd love, yeah, I'd love to to somehow facilitate bringing that to more people. Do you have any ideas about how you'll do that? There might be a podcast about it. Uh, nice. I might, I might talk to you off off offline about that. Actually, always get, here. Yeah, get some input. Um, and yeah, I, as I said, I'm training as a counselor. So in a few years' time, I'll, when I'm trained in that um there might be you know i might i might work with people either on a one-to-one basis or in a mm. sort of workshopping way to kind of use use poetry in that in that therapeutic mm. context as well because because you're getting into i, I presume soundscapey kind of music or or beds essentially that would uh, could accompany your own poetry at some point in a production i wonder if you could create a 12 track album of music for poetry and uh, sort of yeah, the, I mean, no. I I can definitely see, you know, I can definitely see spoken word coming into my next solo record. Whether it would be all poetry, I don't know. Mm. I, it would probably wouldn't be. There'd be songs yeah. and some yeah. spoken word as well. I mean, um, yeah, it's something that I I really enjoy playing around with, and I'm just reminded of a track that we did with Lamb years ago called Darkness that was. <laughs> it was quite it was really 
you know, kind of fun to make because it was so abstract and it's kind of all these kind of crazy noises and then me basically half speaking, half singing this poem cross song. Mm. And then we started to do it live and it was just, you know, all the music was programmed. So I had to get those lyrics in the right places. But oh, the, yeah. the cues were these weird squelchy noises or whatever, you know, there wasn't a, stru- <laughs> a, a formal structure at all. And it was just, yeah, it was crazy to do. But it was it was an amazing piece, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, who knows? I mean... Again, I'm sure you know that it's like we don't really set ourselves and make ourselves a map, do we? You know, Mm. it's like this feeling is just like, okay, so there could be that thing over there that feels Mm. like a nice way to go. And then, you know, we just kind of continue tapping into the flow to name your podcast title. You know, it's like... yeah. Uh, of course, that? we now have to navigate um, not only coronavirus recovery, but also uh, Brexitery. You know, it's a difficult oh one. My. because Don't start on that. Well, I mean, let, at least let's, you, let's, have a, let, you have a Irish passport, don't you? No, I don't. I was born in Scotland, actually. My mum is English, so uh, I'm waiting for Scotland to shift itself from the, from the UK. Yeah, well, yeah. that might happen. And then you could have a, yeah. I don't think what I have any of those roots. It, yeah, well, it's it's sad to have to wish for that to happen, though. I think you know, <laughs> no. but but there is that we have to attach some positivity to it, though. You know, because of course, coronavirus is causing a huge misstep in the way we can be as musicians. But we will recover. Uh, we will need to play places. Places need to be played. Uh, we will have to play in the UK because touring Europe is going to be more difficult. So maybe <laughs> yeah. okay, and maybe because of this, we have to create a very 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 strong internal scene here. And be champions for it. Because at the moment, if we don't do something, all that's going to be left is, you know, the Ed Sheerans and that sort of thing, showing people the way music should be made, when I don't agree with that myself, you know. But (laughs) we need to sort of rebalance the scales, you know. If we can get enough of us to jump on the other side of the scales, we can flip the fat boys off and then redistribute the, I, I guess, the places where we can play and how music is performed and that. So it's all there for us to recover. Yes, I hope that venues survive. That's, I guess, that's the first challenge, isn't it? Um, Mm. But I think you're right. I mean, I have to say, although it's been really challenging this whole pandemic, and obviously so many people have suffered and so many people have died, it's been catastrophic. And yet, I have to say, some good things have come through it. You Mm. know, I think the process of having to slow down. Stay still has been, as for me, has been quite a gift actually. I mean, mm. I'm a natural introvert anyway, but I've become a bit of a hermit <laughs> in you know in these yeah. lockdowns, and yet, yeah, it's it's made me dig into those tunnels of you know and find those gems. You know, it's made me learn piano. It's made me write poetry. It's you know, it's like it's been quite uh, fruitful in so many ways. Yeah. You're like me. So I took to improvement. I took to improving how I was singing. I took to improving what I was doing, my guitar playing, all of that. And maybe not with a view to coming out the other side of it going, I'm better, but just to sort of like go, well, if the the clock stops now, I want to be as good as I can be in terms of these things, you know. And uh, I, I do think a lot of good has come from it. And I also think that this is just a dress rehearsal for our climate change crisis that's coming as well. So in many ways, we've probably bought ourselves another six months to a year 
uh, and we know more now how to react and how to sit still enough to maybe make a difference we're starting to learn to learn yeah essentially you know. Yeah, I mean, it was remarkable, wasn't it, in the first lockdown where I remember because um, we had the amazing weather and I'd spent I spent most of my time sitting outside my uh, in my sort of outside my kitchen uh, on a, this, ta- you know, I had a table outside the window and I'd just I'd sit there and eat and look at the sky and there'd be no planes. And it was like yeah. amazing. It was like it was almost as if the universe had gone, OK, take this for size, you know, Um and and uh, you know the, that that was another magic bonus of it all. It's just like a reset button in a way for the universe, you know, to just mm. give it give everything a bit of rest. Mm. Um, and as you said, with the whole Brexit thing, I mean, the tragedy is is that this funny little country of ours um, has always been great at producing music and creativity you know that's what we're known for and it's Mm. our best export Mm. and now this government has 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 destroyed that option or at least put a very very big barrier in its way you know to taking our music into europe and i you know i I hope at some stage they'll realize the error of their ways because obviously it won't stop us creating and as you said we're gonna have to you know, just <laughs> tour around this little little island of ours, you know, because mm. we don't have, it's not so easy to do it elsewhere. But I guess we just, I guess the, the one thing is that we're good at making do with what we've got, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, except for the Tory party. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we can't I mean, make do with what we've got there. Hell, but but I think <laughs> one of the reasons, one of the reasons they've shot down our, our beautiful flying bird of musical creativity is because p- perhaps Boris Johnson was, Wanted to be a rock star, and his mom told him he was shit. <laughs> it was all her fault. <laughs> I think again, they just don't even realise the half of it. I mean, that's the whole no. thing, isn't it? It's like, I mean, this is a, a conversation that just gets get you know this this brings out the worst mm. side in me. This conversation, but yeah. you know, I don't think anybody knew how ridiculous an idea it was, and they just kept driving it forward. You know, mm. I mean, sovereignty. What the hell is that? <laughs> It gives a flying monkey about sovereignty, you know. I'll always be European. And to just, you know, know, all these people who who have their holiday homes in Costa Brava are now pissed off that they can't go there, you know, because they they wanted to, you know, stop people coming into our country, but we were still supposed to be allowed to go over there. But that doesn't matter. I know, yeah. And all of the, the, the advice is for businesses to set up their business branch in Europe so that they can avoid certain things. But then, ironically, they're paying taxes in Europe <laughs> instead of here so and employing European people to work there. Anyway, this but that's all nonsense. That's all nonsense. We can't get into that. It's like streaming. You can't do anything about it. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. You just got to sort of get by without it. Yeah. Um, maybe we can build a bridge, you know. But we've got digital bridges. We, well, yeah, we have. And, you know, unfortunately, that's we're having to make do with that a lot of the time, aren't we? I mean, it works for this kind of thing, doesn't it? I, I'm not really feeling the online music performances so much. I, I won't do it. Like, I don't... I did initially, first lockdown, I did like three or four live stream sessions. And I was like, yeah, great, this is brilliant. But I never, ever wanted to stand up there with the donate button or any of that stuff. You know, it just didn't feel right, you know. So I did take to self-improvement rather than doing that. Um, now what I want to do is set up uh, in a church here in Woodbridge uh, if they'll let me back in after my last performance there, which was apparently quite blasphemous, but that's good. 
Um, <laughs> but I, no, I shot a video in there with the intention of going in to do a full live set uh, in about three or four weeks' time. And then starting to have a venue in there, a monthly gig where people can come and play. Now, if the coronavirus kicks back in again and we get locked down, which we will, it needs to be sort of malleable enough to be able to have performers in there, film it, not live stream it at the time, shoot it properly, mix it, and then live stream that performance. And, and I think just keep it going to support live mu- live music, you know. And that's, we're going to have to be adaptable, you know. So hopefully you'll come and play if they'll let me back into the church. And if they that don't, we'll go nice. and play anyway. Yeah. You know? I better get yeah. this new album together, don't I? Yeah, come yeah, and, yeah. Come and try out some new songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just just do it and release it. Get get Just like shave your head and grow and stick your hair on and make a big beard and go like, I am Bonnie. And off you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a try. It's worth a try. What about with Lamb? Are you doing another record or what? I don't think so. No, no. The last record was quite challenging to do, actually, because of these processes we've been talking about. And because I think Mm. Andy and I have gone in very different directions with that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he was involved in producing, well, he's one of the producers on the last U2 album. Yeah. And so became very invested in that way of working, of being a team of songwriters and... Um, yeah, just decided that that was the way he wanted to go. And so there was a lot of push and pull, let's say, on making the last Lamb album. And I found that very difficult. Um, and although I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the album, I'm quite proud of the album in many ways. The process of it was really, really difficult. And I'm not sure mm. that I would want to do that again. Mm-hmm. And, mm. you know, I think things come and things go, you know, Lamb have had a really good, you know, 20 year career with, with, without the, the little hiatus in the middle. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think it's time for new, new things. I think it's good to realize that some things have run their course and, and leave with your head held high as well, you know, and yeah. to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. And we always said, you know, in the early days of Lamb, we always said that we'd only ever, make a new record if there was something to say you know and i think mm-hmm. maybe it's time to say other things you know mm. in in different ways who knows never Is, say never you know no you can't no <laughs> but i think it's interesting now that you're using ableton and getting into some experimental production techniques then you know you obviously feel a call to that side of things that if, if andy's not fulfilling that side of it you'll do it yourself yeah um not that you know i i i do I do write at home, but I've also got a great friend up the road who's a producer who's got a lovely little studio. He's literally 10 minutes drive away. Nice. So when I do master vocals, it's it's great to go there because then, you know, I, again, I don't know about you, but it's quite difficult to, to play, to put two hats on and be the producer and the, you know, when, you, when you're singing a vocal, you just don't want to think about anything else. You just need to be in that zone. And so mm. um, it's great to have that, have his studio and his help up the road um so i mean it's actually quite a few really nice studios around here as well in this in this neighborhood yeah so it's 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 great to be able to to do that yeah 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 does that mean you've recorded stuff already then that's well the film I've been doing some collaborations. I mentioned the the movie trailer thing and there's uh, a couple of other collaborations I've done with other artists that 
um, I've recorded there and I've got mm. the vocals there. And then, so they'll be coming out early next year. Um, early next year, early this now. <laughs> this, this, this is <laughs> early <now>. next year. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, it, it is September. Part so of me was back in um, 2020 <laughs> there. Uh, yeah, we'll be coming, we'll be coming out in the next month or yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Look, isn't 2020 a complete lack of vision year for something that's supposed to be 2020 vision? It was like, <laughs> like not, you know. Anyway, this year's great so far. It's been lovely. I'm enjoying it. And uh, especially talking to people like yourself has been very, very... Uh, it fuels you in certain ways. So if you do go down the road of doing a podcast, totally call me up. I'll totally tell you anything you need to do because it's I very, will. very I'll, I'll hit you work. up on that because, yeah... Uh, I'll need some. I'll need some advice. But I totally hear you on that. I think that's one thing that I forget because I have such natural hermit tendencies. I'll get to a point where I'm just like, "There's something wrong," and it's actually mm-hmm. because I haven't spoken to other creative people. You know, I might have spoken to my neighbours or, you know, whatever. But we're. I think we're a funny breed, and and though we need a lot of our own space, I think it's so important to kind of tap into each other as well Mm. and feel that common humanity and feel that you know just hear other people's process as well with it all and I think that's you know such a gift and 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 to see the bravery in others that I found that the most useful thing to see the fearlessness where where and also the differences in people's creative um processes you know vastly different processes often with similar results but vastly different processes and it's all good yeah they're like it's like other people are a reflection to our own for our own process isn't it and it's Mm. you kind of hearing you know hearing you speak today I, I kind of like it reflects back and I'm just like oh yeah that's right that's what I was you know the little yeah. maybe a missing link somewhere in something yeah. something you've been working on or whatever and it's it's yeah it's such a gift we're so all th- here for each other thanks for having you know? me on it's yeah I mean we haven't spoken for ages and so the, it's a bonus that we get to speak and make a podcast as a result as well. Like, exactly. It's yeah. a win-win. Yeah, it, it, it has been fantastic to have you on. And I'm hoping that you're going to play me a song. Are you, uh, are you up for that? I, I wanted to play. Actually, I was kind of thinking of what to play. And yeah. um, I thought I'd play a track from my last solo record, mm-hmm. uh, which was a few years ago now. It's called The S&I. Um, it was... Uh, Produced by uh, Simon Burt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And mixed by um, Noah Georgeson, who worked with Devendra Banhart, or still mm. works with Devendra Banhart. Mm. Um, and there's this track called Magic Ride at the end, um, which mm. kind of seems to kind of speak a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, in a way of kind of just letting things carry you Mm. um and it also has a bit of a it's got uh it's a a lovely piano part played by simon uh that i've since learned in my journeys with the piano and so it kind of it's a nice little um sort of bridge to new ventures i guess in terms of whatever solo work i might start to do and it's got some beautiful cello with by uh the wonderful danny Keane, who we both know 
Um, so yeah, so I'd like to play Magic Ride. Finding faces in a blanket as the trains go rushing by. Loving stillness in a moment of the blinking of an eye. And the time goes by. Every rise and every fall. On this magic ride. And I'm thankful for it all Every day a new beginning Each and every single cell And a tingling in the senses That no tongue can ever tell And the time goes by Every rise and every fall on this magic ride And I'm thankful for it all This magic ride I'm just thankful for it all Um, I think that conversation has said everything that needed to be said and that song perfectly uh, encapsulated the entirety of our thread. Um, I'm going to leave it at that. I've been very happy to be part of this conversation, very happy to have tapped the flow with Lou Rhodes and I hope you've enjoyed that one. Stay tuned. There is a lot more amazing stuff to come from Lou. And thanks again for tapping the flow. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.